Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. While you're turning to Luke chapter 16 to the 14th verse, and we're only taking verses 14 to 18 today, I want to again remind you that Jesus is still in this same synagogue with the same group of rulers, the same group of leaders, the same group of Pharisees, the same group of scribes, the same disciples, the same people. And so this is message is a continuation And you can see that in verse 14, and now the Pharisees who were lovers of money. So it refers back to what we just studied last week. The Pharisees had that problem. And throughout this whole exchange, as Jesus keeps speaking, he keeps reminding them of the centrality of the truth of what God's declared. And he reminds them in this case of something that perhaps they had a little awry in their mind, and that is the place that the law would fit in the life of the believer. And so this is really about Jesus and the law. But it very specifically speaks to a certain part of the law, and it speaks to that certain part of the law that troubles us to this day, that is problematic for people right now, that still comes into the lives of a vast majority of the people in the church because Jesus is going to address in a very limited way the issue of divorce and adultery. Why would Jesus take the time to do that right here? Why would he focus in on that? Why would that be the subject matter, if you will, for this particular portion of this passage? If you remember last time, as we closed, it ended with the world basically mocking the words of Jesus. Oh, you mean you have a biblical view on marriage? You have a biblical view on divorce? You have a biblical view about adultery? Oh, that's old-fashioned. God doesn't even care about that stuff. After all, don't we have laws that make that perfectly okay? In effect, the question then becomes, has God's holy law changed? In other words, is God less moral than he was, say, in the book of Genesis? Does he have a different view about something that he has spoken to previously? That's a question for us, isn't it? Because the world is shouting, because we have laws that make divorce in this state allowable for any reason, 
you can simply say, well, I just don't like her anymore. I just don't like him anymore. We have irreconcilable differences. And that happens to be she doesn't do this or he doesn't do that. He doesn't make enough money. She gained 12 pounds since we got married. And yes, I've had more than one couple come to me with those types of problems. Has God's view changed? Has God's view changed on life? Has God's view changed on homosexuality? Has God's view changed on anything? And so Jesus now is going to give us a way to understand how the law today relates to the life of the believer. Would you join me? We'll pray and we'll pick up in verse 14. Father, we again have come to this time this afternoon to hear from you, for you to take your word and speak to us through it, that we would hear it, and even more importantly, that we would obey it, we'd be doers of it. And so, God, we give you our attention, our minds, our thoughts, our presuppositions, our disposition. Lord, we give you the troubles of this week, all the things that might keep us from hearing. And we ask, God, that you would quiet our minds, that we might receive from you the truth of your word. Fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 14, if we would, here in Luke 16. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money. There it is for you. So Jesus just said you can't have two masters. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't love money supremely and love God supremely. There's only going to be room for one at the top. Now the Pharisees were lovers of money. That's the problem. They also heard these things, and they derided them, him. So they heard what Jesus had to say, and they said, you're nuts. You're, you're crazy. Anybody who has any intelligence in their mind is a lover of money. Jesus is going to expound on that particular thought process, because that thought process is problematic and can be extended into almost every area of your life where the Bible speaks. That's how Christians end up not understanding God's ideal for marriage, God's ideal for divorce, which is in this passage, and we'll cover that one, for why God holds high as the smallest unit of human society, biblical marriage between a man and a woman, why God has a care and concern about many things, some of them he began to codify in what's the law of Moses. And then he expounded on that through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Leviticus, and throughout the rest of what we call the Word of God or the Bible. And he said to them, here it comes, get ready. I'm going to try and lighten the mood occasionally today, lest this become overly burdensome or heavy. But this is serious stuff. Maybe you see yourself in what's going to be said. You may want to underline this 
particular portion of verse 15. These are the words of Jesus. You are those who justify yourselves before men. In other words, you make your excuse. You have your list of conditions. You say things as though if you say them correctly, that somehow what God has previously said, being accepted by mankind, is now okay with God. You justify yourself before men. You go and find somebody to agree with you. You get someone to take up your case. You even might be able to go to court and find somebody to agree with you. Find an attorney that can agree with you. A family member that can agree with you. And you make your case. Well, you know, this is the way our marriage looks. And I'm done. I'm out. It's over. Notice how Jesus further addresses this. You're not fooling God. But God knows your hearts. You make your justifications. You make your excuses. You say what you're going to say. You plead to the law. You plead your case. You run to the Constitution. You run to the court. That court might be the court of public opinion, by the way. But God's not fooled. For the God that we worship is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes not, says the Lord. He's not different today. And our excuses don't work with God. What he has previously said is still true. And just because we have, in this case... No-fault divorce in our state does not mean that God's okay with it. That he listens to your excuses. That he changes what he has previously said about divorce. And so from God's perspective, Jesus is going to now explain this to us in a very pointed way. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In other words, when man makes up a law to make legal that which God has said he doesn't accept, it is an abomination to God. Case in point, abortion. Now you're probably saying, he didn't just say that. Yes, I did. Why? Because God's character doesn't change. And God's word plainly declares that life begins in the womb, that he knew you before you were born, that your days were numbered before you were ever born, that there is no one created but that which God creates them, and that furthermore, that life has value in the Old Testament, so much so that if a woman with child was killed and the child died, you still ended up with the death penalty twice. So when someone comes to me and says, well, it's legal and it needs to be legal, I can point them to this verse and say, oh, no, it doesn't need to be legal. In fact, when we disagree with God 
and then take highly esteemed men and follow them because they said it's okay, that is actually an abomination with God. So just because we've made a law like Roe versus Wade does not mean that God's okay with abortion. Just because we've made divorce laws so that your husband doesn't make enough money and that to you is an irreconcilable difference. Or your wife gained three pounds since you married her. Irreconcilable difference. I didn't marry this woman who now is three pounds heavier. Doesn't mean God's okay with it. He looks at what his word says about these things, and that is still his opinion. That's what God thinks about it. And the laws that we make and the excuses we give don't fly with God. Why is that important? Because the Bible speaks to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of very specific areas of life and living. And what God has said is God's opinion on the matter. So Jesus is actually addressing the issue of his character, his nature, his word, and why what he said is still his holy standard. And it's up here. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He sets this in place for us by saying, verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. In other words, mankind up to that point in time related to God as a system of relationship via the law and the prophets, the temple, the sacrifices, the ceremonies and the feast days. That is how man was reconciled as much as one could be to God. That's how it worked. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. In other words, now grace comes into view. Salvation by grace and through faith, amen? But here's the problem. Some people think that grace is so free as to be cheap. And so because we are now saved by grace through faith, that the law no longer applies in any way, shape, or form. Jesus addresses that very thing in this passage. Because that's not what your Bible declares. The Bible doesn't say that the law as a standard of living has changed. It simply says as a relationship, a way of relating to God until the gospel was preached, you related to God by the law. Afterwards, you relate by grace, but the standard of the law is still his holiness. It remains so. And if you don't believe it, check what follows. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And praise God, I want to press into grace. Amen? We sang about God's grace. Anybody here happy that you're saved by grace? Amen? I am. Praise the Lord. I'm a child of God by grace. You know why? Because you give me 10 rules, 
I'm going to figure out a way around eight of them. I'm going to probably break at least two of them willingly. I think that's most human beings, in fact. You tell us we can't do something, what do we do? You want to give you proof of that? You're wearing them on your face. Masks. I'm not wearing a mask. Nobody's telling me what to do. I'm not socially distancing. I don't have to do that. I'm an American. We can't even wear a mask. How do you think we're going to do with not covering your neighbor's goods? You, you see, when we start leaning on the law as a way to relate to God now, we deny the grace of God. I now relate to God through grace, but his standard is still absolute holiness. Here it is. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Now, in case you don't know what a tittle is, if you were to write out Hebrew or Aramaic, Aramaic is a Paleo-Hebrew language, Hebraic language. It has two basic punctuation points or ways that you can define letters and their sound. And they're both the smallest portions of the alphabet in Hebrew and Aramaic. Now, I don't know how many of you struggled in English in high school or college, and you were the one that kept getting your things that you turned in returned to you with circles around things like periods, commas. You had a colon instead of a semicolon. You put the parentheses in the wrong places. It wasn't the content, it wasn't the words, it wasn't even the thought process. You put down the wrong punctuation. And you probably went, ah, it still means the same thing. Jesus is saying it would be easier for you to wrap up heaven and earth before one bit of the Old Testament law's standard of God's character and holiness, not one tittle of it would pass away. Why is that important? Because I think divorce is a little more than a tittle. I think adultery is a slightly bigger problem than a yot, one of the other two small pieces of punctuation. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. What is Jesus saying? You mean if ever? And people will bring me to this verse and go, I think it's the unpardonable sin. No, it's not. And I hope to set you free if that's you today. It's not. Jesus is simply now saying something that they could relate to. And he's giving us exactly how problematic it is when you dumb down the holiness of God. When you say, well, I have my excuses as to why I got divorced. I have my excuses as to why I committed adultery. I have my things that were going on in my life and it's just like, it's, it's okay. God's got to see it as okay because I talked to my mom. I talked to my dad. I talked to this other person. I went to the law and the law of the country said I could do this. And God's going, no, you're not actually impressing me with your thinking. My mind is not changed. My standard is no different than it ever was. The Pharisees were famous 
for taking pieces of the law and putting it out there as though what they said was the law itself. And so like so many areas of life and living, Jesus simply gives us an example from the law of Moses. So what about the law of Moses? What about the law in the church? Has God changed his holiness? Maybe that's a question you're thinking of. Has God caved in to the moral climate of our day? Does God actually see marriage between two men as the same as between a man and a woman? There's another one for you. Has God changed his attitude on these things? Does he actually, because we now have laws that have made those things legal, because you'll get shouted down if you hold a biblical view of marriage? Is God okay with us telling people that, well, as long as it's love, love is love? Does God hold that view? Um, I'm pretty sure the Bible says he doesn't. No, he doesn't. You see, part of the problem is we fail to yield to the fact that God's law is essential in its nature. You can't have it one way in the Old Testament and another way in the New Testament. Otherwise, God was unfair to the people in the Old Testament times. Can you imagine the people that are awaiting their final judgment right now in the Abuso that were the ones that lost their lives in Sodom? Well, you know, know, now there's gay marriage. So what are we doing here? How come you wiped us out? Or how about when the Israelites followed after the false gods of the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and God destroyed all of those people? Well, you know, it really wasn't that bad. I was kind of, you know, I was off a little. I was having a bad day. God woke up. He was just angry that morning. No, God is holy. And he's always been holy. He's never not been holy. Matter of fact, in case you didn't know, God actually says of himself, I, the Lord, change not at all, period. He doesn't change. And so there is an essential nature to what Jesus is saying here. And so he starts with what they had previously been discussing, which was money. Maybe they're looking at, well, it's easy for you to say, you know, you're dismissing the fact that we're rich and you're not because you don't have any. Or you don't live my life. You haven't been through what I've been through. If you'd been through what I've been through, you wouldn't say that. No, what God says, he says from perfection. He doesn't make mistakes. What he has declared, he means. And what he means, he wants us to put into practice. That's his standard. That's how we're supposed to live our lives. And what had happened with the rabbis is they began to do exactly what they wanted to do, which was to make laws that they themselves could keep and that they could hold over others. And so they just simply changed the law. And we have done much the same 
in our day and time. I've shared with you before. When I was, when I was a child, divorce in the state of California was still illegal. You had to get rid of divorce to have a legal divorce. But it was principally illegal. Homosexuality, also illegal. It was listed actually as a mental disorder. And so mankind comes along and says, well, you know, we just don't feel that anymore. Doesn't mean that God's okay with it. And so Jesus says, look, we're pressing into grace. Let's square away these other things. And so he begins by telling them, first it's essential, and then, look, my law is eternal. That's why he says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. The Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, look, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful, goes on and in that amazing sermon says, forgive, forgive, forgive. Nowhere in there did he say, and sin your brains out. Keep doing whatever you want, because it's all just going to be fine with God. He didn't say that. He didn't even intimate that that was going to be okay with him. The Pharisees, however, were sitting there thinking, well, we keep more of the law than you do. And because we keep more of the law than you do, we're better than you are. So if God's going to accept anybody because it's all about law keeping, he will surely accept us. And if he's going to reject anybody, it's going to be you because you don't keep all the law. And Jesus says, no, we're pressing into the gospel times now. You no longer relate to God through the law, but his standard hasn't, hasn't even budged. Hasn't budged. Because the law was actually eternal. It had an eternal nature. It was an eternal standard. In our current age that we live in right now, the age of grace, the law as a system is defunct. It's no longer in practice and principle that way. I'm always amazed that people miss the part about Jesus' crucifixion, the the significance of the tearing of the veil. Why is that significant? Because the veil was an obstruction. The veil was an obstruction between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. And that veil stood there as testimony to man's sinfulness. But what happened when Jesus died on Calvary's cross and said, Tetelestai, it is finished? From heaven, the veil ripped from the top to the bottom, and that door was forever opened by grace through faith. By believing on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I can now relate directly to God through Christ his Son. I was kept out before. I couldn't go in before. And in fact, the only person that could was the high priest, and that was only one day of the year on Yom Kippur. 
After making extensive sacrifice for himself, for his own family, for the children of Israel, and after careful deliberations before the Lord, and the tying on of a cord around his ankle and bells on the hem of his garment, so if he dropped dead in the presence of the Lord, that they could pull his body out from the holiness of God. You see, they used to relate by the law, and the law was deadly. The law was death-dealing. Anyone that got caught under the law was for sure dead. And so the only thing that ever happened was the people were atoned for. Their sins were put away for a period of time. And then every year, another Yom Kippur would come up. And another opportunity for another high priest to go in and offer more blood of bulls and goats. And it never, ever, ever, ever ended. But that bloodshed has now ended. Jesus paid the price for our sins. He's washed us and made us white as wool. He opened the door of heaven wide, and anyone who believes in the name of the Lord can be saved. And we can come in by grace. But we're still coming into the presence of the Creator of heaven and earth who dwells in holiness and majesty. We're not coming in to some crafty court of man's opinions about what we should be thinking. We're still coming into the presence of the same holy God. That's why when someone tells me, well, you know, I just think, it does not matter what you think. It matters what God said. It's his opinion that is supposed to be your opinion. If you're a child of God, by grace, through faith, then what God has said is now your opinion. So why would Jesus use this particular example? Because as a system, it's not how we relate anymore. But as a standard, it is, it remains. Because there is a law of ethics that God still holds. There is an ethical view of divorce that God holds. He has spoken on it. He, he told us what he thinks. He's told us what he believes. And so Jesus is saying, look, you guys have now freed people to do something that God still says he hates. It's not his plan for any marriage. It is simply an allowance of sin. And so the legalist might grab on to verse 18 and go, see, I told you, that person's divorced, they can't even be saved. And they pull out Romans 1, they pull out 1 Corinthians 6. Look, right here, adulterer. They link these two verses and that person's lost. That's not what Jesus is getting at. And praise God that's not what he's getting at. Because if divorce is the unpardonable sin, this world is in trouble. If adultery is the unpardonable sin, this world is in trouble. Here's why. For if you said to me that Jesus said, if you look on someone with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart, you would be correct. So for the legalist, I pray you're not clinging to this verse and see, I told you so. And for the libertine person, I pray you're looking at this verse going, man, God is still holy. 
God still has a standard. And just because something is legal does not mean God's okay with it. Notice what I just said. Just because something is legal does not mean God is okay with it. And there's an awful lot of things that are legal, especially in this state, that God's not okay with. And so you as a believer are supposed to have God's opinion on those matters and act as though those things are truth. So Jesus takes something that I believe not only plagued the world then, but certainly plagues the world now. In order to understand what Jesus is getting at, it's going to be important that we know what Jesus further said on this issue. If you'd turn to Matthew chapter 19, and specifically beginning in verse 3, because the Bible declares of itself there in 2 Peter chapter 1 that no prophecy, no word of the Lord is of any private interpretation. In other words, God always clarifies things that might be misunderstood. And that is certainly the truth with this particular thing. You need to understand Luke 16 through Matthew 19. And the Pharisees also came to him testing him. So there it is. It's like, we got him now. We'll get him to admit that he's changed his mind on divorce. Testing him, saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce your wife for just any reason? There it is, no fault divorce, explained in the Bible. Just any, just any reason. And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? There goes gay marriage. From God's perspective, in the beginning, he made them male and female, and he never performed a wedding. In fact, he codified in his law that it is an abomination for a man to lie with a man or a woman to lie with a woman. So this gets back to the truth of what God's word says, not what man has declared is okay and legal. In the beginning, he made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, what reason? Marriage, because the subject matter is divorce. That would be a marriage getting busted up. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, that they are no longer two, but one, and therefore what God has joined together, who joins you together in marriage? It's God. It's not the state of California. It's God. God presides over every wedding ceremony, whether you want him to or not. If you don't invite him, he's showing up anyway. He invented marriage. He defined marriage. He's the one that tells us what it is, what it looks like, how it functions. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Do you see any conditions there? Why? They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And he said to them, Here's why. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, the very thing that Jesus speaks in Luke's gospel, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. 
Notice the difference between the question that was asked and the way Jesus answered. You see it? Moses commanded. They said, well, Moses commanded. Moses did not command. Nowhere in the Mosaic law is there a command for you to divorce, ever. It's not there. Matter of fact, the exact opposite exists. And so Jesus said, look, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you. In other words, he made an allowance for you to divorce. That's a very specific allowance. Very specifically, he allowed, did not command, did not force, did not cajole, did not mandate, did not say you must. Allowed. Very different than commanded, isn't it? That's why we have to hold in view what God holds in view and not take up what man says. As man says, anything happens, I'm out. Why do you think Jesus now mentions the original reason for divorce? From the beginning, it was not so. Where where was the beginning? Uh, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. In the beginning was God. God in the beginning said it was not so. And say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except, here it is. Here's the one reason the Old Testament allowed for, not commands, not mandates, didn't say, praise God, he finally committed adultery, I can leave him. You know why I said that? Because I've actually had people tell me that. I've actually had people look me in the eye and say, I was just waiting. I knew eventually. Be careful. Because you're a child of grace. You're bound for heaven because of forgiveness. And not one of us is getting there without that grace or without that forgiveness. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced also commits adultery. Jesus pointed him back to what the law actually said. He said, you know what? My father in heaven hasn't changed his opinion on this. Now look, I want to be really clear here. Very clear. Meticulously clear. If you're here and you've been through a divorce, if you're here and that has touched your life. That is not the impardonable sin. God's grace is still sufficient for every divorced person, still able to heal even the wounds of those things. But Jesus is speaking in the moment to something that hasn't happened yet. He's giving a word, if you will, into the life of someone who maybe is pondering divorce, thinking, I might be better off without him or without her. So Jesus is pointing us back to the biblical teaching on divorce. What does God actually say about it? Well, the truth of the matter is, and it's found in Malachi chapter 2, if you want to turn there, that God has always, and still 
hates divorce, even if there's biblical grounds for it. There are two in the New Testament, both found in 1 Corinthians. Found there in chapter 7. Sexual immorality is in the Old Testament. In other words, repeated sexual sin. And there's also abandonment by an unbelieving spouse is the only other cause that allows, even allows for it. But what does God really think about it? Verse 16, Malachi chapter 2. Final book of the Old Testament. God is about ready to go silent. There will be no prophet to speak to the children of Israel for 400 years. Until we reach the days of the gospel, the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Why? For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. There is no place in the entire Bible that mandates ever that divorce is a good thing. It it may be an end that comes. And for the offended party, the person who has sinned against, it is allowable. But it is always only God's permissive will. He permitted it. But what would bring him more glory? The same thing that brought him glory in reaching you for salvation. Forgiveness. Repentance. Restoration. Healing. Cleansing. God is actually about those things. He allows for other things to exist in our lives. But as the children of God, we look at this passage and say, what's God's perfect will for our marriage? What's God's perfect will for my life? What is God's absolute best? You see, people sometimes look at the exception and they try and map out a plan. Remember what Jesus said? Your justifications are not believed by God. So your map, your path, your well, I'll just, you know, start being mean to him. I'll, I'm, you know, I'm going to quit my job. That'll get to her. I'm kind of tired of living with her anyway. God sees absolutely every bit of that and he knows why you're doing it. And he's looking at it going, this is going to cover your life with violence. In your spirit, this is treachery. That's what God sees. So the biblical grounds are very different than the legal grounds, aren't they? You see, the legal grounds in this state are almost anything. They're literally almost anything. You can walk into divorce court and just, you know, I'm just done trying. And God's going, why are you done trying? Isn't part of the fruit of the Spirit suffering long and being kind? 
Yeah, I wish sometimes those verses weren't there too. You've probably had people in your life, you're like, hmm, not everybody else, but not them. You see, that's what Jesus was talking about. That's the justification. That's us explaining why that verse doesn't apply to that person. Doesn't apply to that relationship. Here's the tragedy. God still sees them all as excuses. <laughs> they might be good excuses. They may be better excuses than somebody else's excuses. But God gives us tremendous clarity on this. God still hates divorce. God only allowed it. He never ordained it. And even in the allowance, there's exactly two in Scripture. There's not five, there's not ten, and there's no in-betweens. And so, what do you think God actually thinks about divorce? He hates it. He hates it. He hates it. You know, it's been estimated that since no-fault divorce came into this country, it has robbed somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to $7 trillion from the lives of families who otherwise would keep that generational wealth in their family, but instead it's split up and given away. That the mental anguish and the toll on children is actually greater than the mental anguish and the toll on the two people getting the divorce. Let me give you a little story. Most of you know I'm not exactly young. Last Saturday morning, I woke up, I was getting ready to do a wedding. And my brother and I had planned to go see my mom. And he said, we're too late, she's gone. I came and did the wedding. Then my brother and I decided that we would still get together. And if you want to ask if this story is true, you can ask Connie. And we got together to talk about the things that you have to talk about when someone in your life passes. And you know the one thing? The one thing. The two middle 60-year-old men began to weep about is that we never got to know our mommy. We both love the Lord. But that pain, that destruction, that thing that to us was worse than death, 50 years later, two men who love Jesus one who spent decades in full-time ministry sat across the table from one another, bawling because of what divorce 
does to children. So don't believe the lie that is going to be better for the kids. Don't believe the lie that my next spouse will treat me right. Because the tragedy of this is you still take you into the second relationship. And while that's not meant to be a condemnation of anyone, it should be a revelation to some. That's why God said, I hate it. It will cover your life with things you will not want, that no one wants. And so every means should be exhausted to seek the grace of God. Because God sees the whole picture. He sees your family. He sees your extended family. He sees your aunts, your uncles, your cousins. He sees every Thanksgiving and every Christmas. He sees it all. And so when he says he hates divorce, because from God's perspective, he sees all of the destruction that's going to come. He sees the pain of some well-aged man who every single year cries on Mother's Day and cries on Father's Day. Who's now had the opportunity to listen to his own father still to this day bemoan the fact that he couldn't save his marriage. That's why Jesus is saying what he's saying. He's not saying to you that you won't be saved. He's saying this is so dangerous and so destructive that you need to have his opinion of what it is. It will harm you likely, irreparably, forever. You're going to die with that pain. Yes, over time, maybe it'll get better. Maybe it won't. And Jesus is saying, look, you need to hold my law high. My law says I hate divorce. Let me just say to you, if you've been divorced, God loves you. And he forgives you. If you've asked, he's forgiven. But for those of you that have been through that trauma, you know what I'm saying is true. That God's right. There's still pain. There's still anguish. Maybe it's not as mine is, or my brother's is, or my family's is. But it's still there. And God sees that before you get there. And he said, so here's my standard of my law. Stay married. You're making a vow before me. And exhaust every means possible to save your marriage. Treat it as precious. It's holy. Jesus said, that which God has joined together, let no one separate. He didn't say that to make you miserable. He said that because the other option is terrifying. It's horrific. It's not easy. It's not better. 
Malachi would go on in chapter 3, actually speaking again about money. It's interesting. It's marriage and money. It's morality and money. It's these two things in Malachi. It's these two things in Matthew. It's these two things here in Luke's gospel. For I am the Lord. Verse 6, Malachi 3. I do not change. And therefore, here it is. This is the promise for you. This is a promise for you right now. Though it seems harsh that God says he hates divorce, it's not. It's so incredibly loving. And if you've made a mistake, these verses are for you. This is for you. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. You're not consumed. You're not consumed. O sons of Jacob, yet from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances and not kept them. There it is. Here's what I said. This is what I meant. This is how you should live your life. You haven't done that. Here's your hope. Here's my hope. Everyone's hope. Return to me. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That is what God wants for every broken marriage. That's what God wants for those of us that have been damaged by a broken marriage. That's what God wants for every other sinful thing in our lives. That's what God wants for those areas to where his holiness says this, but our activity says this. He says, please leave my holiness here in heaven, and would you try and get closer to that and further from the earth? But when you fail, return to me. Just return to me. Confess your sin. And he is just to forgive. He will, he will, he will, he will forgive you. And furthermore, 1 John 1, 9 says, he will cleanse you from that stuff. And he will begin to do that work that says, I have returned to the preeminent place in your life. The reason that God still hates divorce, even though it's legal, is he knows the pain. He knows the suffering. He knows the damage. He knows the heartache. But in spite of that, he still offers to those who repent He offers restoration. He offers love. He offers forgiveness. He offers a a removal, even of the shame, of the pain, of the hurt. And I know in my own life, I, I praise God that the Lord has graciously healed so many of those wounds. But I also know that God would have rather not had those wounds in my life. In anyone's life. 
And so if you're here today and your marriage is a mess, return to him. You've been where you shouldn't be with someone you're not married to. Return to him. Return to him. He will return to you. He'll treat you just like the prodigal son. He's waiting in the watchtower saying, here comes my boy. There's my daughter. And he's going to come running. But you have to return to him. You have to flee those things. You have to turn away. You have to get tired of being where you are and going where you're going. And so church, if you're struggling, God can heal it. He can heal it. He can fix it. He can make your marriage better than it's ever been. If you return, you hold his view and he'll hold your hand. You take up his cause and he'll be your defense. You listen to his voice and he'll silence the other voices. Return to him and be healed. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the miracle of your grace. And Lord, I I pray we who right now are joined together in prayer, lift up every marriage, both here in, in this place and also online and around the world or those that are listening, those that will hear this message later. And God, their marriages are a mess. Maybe they're even contemplating divorce right now. They're thinking the law will bail them out. Lord, would you show them the futility of their thinking? Show them some hope. Give them words to encourage. Would you tear down the strongholds of the enemy? Or would you get our eyes off of this earth and onto heaven? God, strengthen every marriage represented. Make us as husbands, Lord and to men who love you supremely, who honor you with everything that we do and think. Lord, for our amazing wives, Lord, that put up with so much, God, they struggle too. And in their weakness, whatever that is, Lord, would you help us to see marriage the way you see it, that you've joined us together so that the two are one. Whatever tears one apart, tears the other apart. It's inevitable. And so help us to be bound together with your cord of love. We thank you, we praise you, and we honor you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.